Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the introduction to his new book, Dominion, my guest, Tom Holland, writes, For millennium and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that has come to be hidden from view. It is the incomplete revolutions which are remembered. The fate of those which triumph is to be taken for granted. Tom Holland is a classical historian, an award-winning and best-selling author of numerous books, a translator of Herodotus' Herodotus's histories, and the maker of numerous documentaries, and co-host for a number of years of the best radio program on history, BBC Radio 4's Making History. Tom Holland, welcome to Historically Thinking. Say that. I, I, I missed that. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Okay, um, so... Let me give you, um, I'm going to give a long wind up here, and then eventually there might be a question at the end of it. Um, David Foster Wallace, the late David Foster Wallace, when he was giving a commencement speech at, at Kenyon, told an old joke. I don't know if you know this one. There's two young fish swimming through the water, and they meet an old fish, and the old fish says, beautiful day. Isn't it lovely water today, kids? And then one fish, eventually, the young fish turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? Um... This is a book about the water. It is absolutely a, a, a book about the water. And um, essentially the, the, the metaphor that I had the whole way while I was writing the book was the idea that if the West is a goldfish bowl and we're the goldfish, then the water that we swim in is basically Christian. Mm -hmm. um, but then actually having, um, when, after I'd finished the book, another metaphor struck me, which was prompted by watching um, the HBO series Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. um, and some of your listeners may have watched it. But even if you haven't, I mean, you'll know the story that the nuclear reactor explodes. Um, and in, in the, the TV drama, you see two characters actually looking at the leak of radioactivity through the concrete and the air is being ionized so it's obvious what is happening but of course the impact of the uh, the radiation leak is that it it's invisibly and it reaches kiev and it reaches scandinavia and it reaches the limits of western europe and people may not realize that they're breathing this stuff in but they are and it's changing them that doesn't mean that i'm <laughs> i'm kind of going <laughs> you know, full Richard Dawkins or anything and saying that it, Christianity makes your hair drop out and kills you. <laughs> but what it is to say is that the, that, that, that a bit like, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in a cathedral, if you're contemplating Dante, if you're looking at a, a work of art showing the crucifixion, then of course you, you recognize that you're in the presence of Christianity's impact. But if you're attending a, a gay marriage, um, if you define yourself as a secularist, if you if you contemplate the immensity of time, you may not necessarily think that you've been shaped by the cultural impact of Christianity, but you have been. Mm. And it's in that sense 
I'm kind of interested in it. It's not just the doctrinal practice of the faith. It's the way in which its impact has kind of become like particles in the air that we all breathe in without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, I'm, I think increasingly on this um, podcast, I'm becoming interested in cultural constraints. And it's been a long time for me to understand what Durkheim was on about, um, that there are punitive actions in culture or guardrails in culture, and they keep us in to certain directions and, and certain, certain ways of, uh, we're basically, like a guardrail, they force us down a road. We can't, we, we only with difficulty can we go off that road. Um, and Christianity is one of those guardrails that we don't even notice. It's, you know, we talk, we talk about the elephant in the room, but often we don't know, notice the room, um, you know, let alone yeah, the exactly. yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, oh, yeah. Well, and, another, it's like DNA, it's cultural DNA. We, yeah. we, we, we do what we do because it's just in our, our makeup. Um, and one, ways in which um christianity is is distinctive uh, and i think you know, incredibly hegemonic it's it's the, been the most influential way that humanity is what its purpose is for that that's ever been devised but one of the ways in which that expresses itself is that christianity has ended up kind of generating um impulses that has has led to the marginalization of doctrinal christianity Mm-hmm. So, a classic of that would be the the the, um, the idea of the secular. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of popular idea that that secular is 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 a kind of neutral term that you can apply it whatever that every period has had a notion of the secular. It absolutely has not. The the Greeks, the Romans had no sense of the secular at all. It, in fact, even the early Christian Church didn't really have a sense of it. Instead, it emerges from a particular cultural context, which is that of the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Rome falls in AD 410. It gets sacked by the Goths. And there are lots of Romans who have not been persuaded by uh, Christian truth. Um, this as a punishment visited on Rome by the Goths. And the Roman understanding... It's like a kind of insurance policy. You, you lay down a premium and then the gods look after you. And in Latin, this premium is, is called religio. And a religio could be a sacrifice, it could be a priesthood, it could be celebrating a festival, anything like that. And so Christian Romans say we have abandoned the religiones and therefore the gods have abandoned us. And the great Christian cast to this comes from... Uh, great bishop, great father of the church, Augustine, who says, no, because these gods are are demons, and they, like Rome, like every mortal, abound upon what Augustine calls the cyclum. And cyclum, again, a Latin word, and it means the limit of living memory. So you're born, you live, you die, and you and everybody else is then born on the kind of endless flux of things into oblivion. And if that's true of, of individual mortals, then so too is it true of cities of men, as Augustine calls them, of which Rome is, is just one. These are earthly states. They will come, they will rise, they will be swept away. The only thing that is eternal is the city of God. And the only thing that can redeem mortals from the flux of the cyclum is the religio, the bond to that city 
that the church provides. And so this becomes a very fundamental idea within the kingdoms and realms that emerge and are planted on the ruins of the, the vanished empire of the Romans in the West. And by the 11th century, a whole cadre of radicals, I think you can call them precipitate Europe's first experience of what they call reformatio, the ambition to remake society as a whole, to rebapt, to, to baptize it, to see it born again. And they do this by weaponizing the idea of religio and of the cyclum. And they say, if the church is the only way that um, mortals are going to be able to redeem from the cyclum, then those who belong in the cyclum should their grubby, dirty fingers off the intact purity of the church's robes. And these include emperors and kings, who up until then, like free autocrat across the entire span of Eurasia, from the Atlantic to Japan, had assumed that if you have earthly power, then you have a state natural. But these, these reformers in the 11th century say, no, you know, hands off, get your grubby fingers off the church. And they push through this program of reformatio, which leads to emperors kneeling in the snow, waiting for absolution from the Pope. It leads to the church being able to marshal armed warriors who they send to Jerusalem, to the Baltic, to the Muslim realms in Spain. It leads to them founding uh, entire new educational establishments pledged to upholding the radical ideas that have been conveyed called universities, radical new concepts such as the idea that humans have rights. And so what we now think of as Europe and perhaps might be tempted to think of as a kind of backward, conservative, hidebound society was in fact a massively revolutionary society, the first revolutionary society in Europe. And everything that has followed has simply followed in the pattern of that first bout of reformatio. So the reformation, we call it, it's, it's, it's just another spasm of reformatio. So what you've just done is you've indicated kind of the way that you're working in the book. Um, it's a narrative. It starts, you know, even before the death of Christ. It goes up until the present moment, up until like last week's tweet, it seems. Um, but, or actually, yeah, yes, last, last, minute's, <laughs> last, last minute's tweet, um, because it's still very relevant. It's still highly relevant. Yeah, at the same time, it's a sort of, um, I was trying to figure out how do I classify? Is this a new genre? Is this like a meditation on historical narrative? Because there are, of course, there are threads of meditation that go through the entire thing. You're you're tracking seculum all the way through to secularism and questioning our our presuppositions. Yeah. But yeah. I kept thinking again and again as I was looking through the book. I thought only a classical historian could write this book. And I thought about this for some time um, because, and I have a medieval studies degree. Um, I know all these facts, but I don't see them in the same way. Um, and it, it reminded me of when I first read the Iliad, unfortunately, when I was 24 or fortunately when I was 24 and I, I said, I finished it. I thought, huh, polytheism is normal and monotheism is strange. <laughs> and, you know, I read this book and I, and you're coming from, as it were, classical, you've been so thoroughly imbued in the classical worldview that you can see things that we often take for granted. Well, it, yes, I, it, a, a long time seeing the world through the eyes of, of, of the Greeks or, or particularly perhaps the Romans. 
Um, hello? No, I just, I'm sorry, I put the time oh, down. I, I just wanted to shut the, yeah. uh, the, the um, we're having a difficulty connecting. At least there's some freezing. Okay, should I shut my image as well? Yeah, I think you should. And that will um, hopefully, okay, hold on. hopefully that will okay. then. Is that, I, is that better? I hope so. Uh, hopefully then, you know, yeah, the okay. little, little electrons will get through faster. Yeah. Okay. Right, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, th I think that if you um, spend a, a lot of time looking at the world, through the eyes of, of the Romans. That's certainly the experience I had. Um, I mean, as, as a child, I, basi I, I basically found Christianity a bit dull in mm -hmm. comparison to, say, the Greek gods. Um, and I found, um, you know, I, I deeply resented monks for turning up and ruining the <laughs> ruining the glamour and charisma of the legions. But as an adult, um, you know, trying to see the, uh, the the world through the eyes of Caesar, who Plutarch says maybe with some exaggeration, but probably not much, um, slaughtered a million Gauls and enslaved another million and mm -hmm. became the toast of Rome for it and and boasted of it. You realize that values have been transformed utterly, and I, th I th and I think that that's something that's that basically Nietzsche famously points out. I mean, mm -hmm. Nietzsche's very unsettling because he strongly identified with what he saw as as the kind of the the, the power, the charisma, the might of. Uh, rose in Greece and Rome, and he despised Christianity for bringing the blonde bee down, for privileging the, the weak and the poor and the disadvantaged. Um, and he hated the way that Christianity kind of stumbled on this amazing truth that actually a, a truth that the West at the moment constantly has um, animating its, its, its politics and its values. But it's not just in the dimension of values. It's, it's also in almost every way. When, when you look back at the classical past, you realize that there's a kind of film in front of your eyes, and that film essentially is Christian. So mm -hmm. even on the most fundamental level, say sex, mm -hmm. you'd think, surely sex, people's experience of desire, that must be something basically universal. People must have experienced that, you know, it, Changingly over the centuries, but when you look at, at how the Romans conceptualized sex, you realize it was unfathomably different, and that almost everything that we take for granted now is deeply rooted in, in in profound Christian theological suppositions. And essentially, the two thousand years of Christian history have served completely to rewire. The way that, that 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 our minds work, and the way that we understand sexual desire, the way that we understand what the relationship of men and women should be, the way that we understand what the binary in sex should be, and it's hard to emphasise just kind of what a gear shift, therefore, Christianity is, and we take it so for granted that we don't even recognise. Well, well, let's um, let's focus on that. Let's uh, let's talk about what crucifixion meant to a Roman. I mean, let's go like to right to the heart of the cultural yeah. practice. Um, could you explain from the Roman perspective what's going on in crucifixion? 
Well, it, I, when I was writing the book about, I started it six months into writing it, and then I, I took time off to make a documentary about um, Islamic State, yeah, right. uh, which involved us going to Iraq. Uh, and in particular, we visited a town called Sinjar, which in a major centre for um, Yazidis, who I'm sure most of your listeners will know, but just in case they don't, they were a religious minority that were particularly targeted by the Islamic State, who would unjustly accuse them of devil worship. And so when the Islamic State moved in on Sinjar, they um, they rounded up the women and killed those who weren't active. They enslaved those who were, um, and they killed the men. And some of them crucified. And so we went to this town a few weeks after it had been liberated. So ISIS was still um, about two miles away across flat fields, so absolutely within striking distance. So to, to be in this town that was it flattened, there was smell of corpses in the air, was to visit the kind of scene that the legions um, inflicted wherever they went, wherever they conquered. Mm -hmm. And crucifixion served the Romans as... A, 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 a kind of billboard of their power. It, it wasn't designed just to um, to punish, although it was an excruciating punishment. Um, you know, you're, you, it would be protracted for, for hours, for days. You wouldn't be able to beat the birds away from pecking out your eyes or attacking your genitals. The real horror of it, though, in a, in a society that prized dignity was that your humiliation would be publicized. And so you would yes. serve as advertisements for Roman authority. The extraordinary thing about Christianity is that it upends that. It, it, it transformed what had been a symbol of Roman power into a symbol of the opposite, into a triumph of the victim over the victimizers, a triumph of the tortured over the torturer, tri triumph of the slave over the master. And so to be in Sinjar and to know that people who had no sense of that, who regarded crucifixion as the Romans had regarded it, mm -hmm. as a way of instilling dread and terror, I felt it in my gut in a way that I would never have done reading a multitude of books, sitting in a multitude of libraries. I've, I felt it viscerally. And so I came back and I rewrote the opening of the book to dwell on crucifixion because I realised that in a way the, the, the adoption of the cross as perhaps the most culturally recognized symbol that humanity has ever devised, symbolizing the opposite of what it meant to the Romans, is in a way the weirdest mm -hmm. and most transformative symbol of what I'm talking about in this book you, of the whole lot. You, um, and basically it's the most countercultural <laughs> move maybe in human history. Um, yeah, I really think that. I mean, it's just an astonishing move. And, yeah. and the thing is, is that the earliest Christian writers completely recognize this. Yes. So, of course, the earliest Christian writer of all is Paul. And he's going around and he's saying, you know, this crucified criminal in an obscure corner of the empire is, in fact, in, in some strange way that Paul can't quite identify a part of the one creator God of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> he says that this is a stumbling block for the Jews, which is putting it mildly. Yeah. And it's kind of lunacy for everyone else. And of course it's lunacy. I mean, it's absolute madness. And yet people start to kind of buy into it, take it up. But a century on, uh, Justin, um, perhaps the most, you know, the most influential apologist, a Christian apologist in the second century, again, he's kind of saying, 
this is really embarrassing that he, he suffered this death, but this is what we believe. Mm-hmm. And even by the fourth century, so Constantine gets converted because he sees in the sky the sign of the cross. Um, he, uh, he, he bans crucifixion. Um, but even a century on from, from Constantine, it's as though Christian artists cannot bring themselves physically to portray it. The kind of the taint of shame and, 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 and horror still clings to it. And so it's only at the end of the fourth century that you start to get artists portraying Jesus on the cross. And even then, He's not shown suffering. I mean, he's kind of massively buff. He's an athlete. Yes, he's right. got a six pack. Even, he, he's, you know, he's kind of the the, the guy you'd see. You know, yeah, I I always love showing lifeguards. The, yeah, the eleventh century like crosses. There's like a Danish cross I used to show in a you know class slideshow, um, and it's basically very much God sort of float. It's very much floating on the cross. Uh, he is not. Well, it's a symbol of he's he's a victor. He's yes, a victor he's a victor. In the and then uh, you, and then it's part of this reformatio that, oh, that you mentioned. Mentioned as part of that reformatio, then all of a sudden he becomes the twisted victim. And so in the 11th century, suddenly and very abruptly, this figure who previously had served, served as a kind of emblem of triumphant royalty is transformed into his, his sufferings are visually portrayed. You start to see him dead on the cross. And then escalatingly over the centuries that follow, his sufferings are portrayed more and more vividly. And I think actually... It, it, it's ultimately, it has a deadening effect mm-hmm. because we get desensitized to just how strange it was. Mm-hmm. But in, certainly over the course of the, you know, the first millennium of the Christian um, period, the shock of it is so vivid that Christian artists can't portray his suffering. Right. And then for the centuries that follow, his suffering is portrayed, but it, it, it desensitizes us to, to the degree that now we, I think we have forgotten just how shocking the, the emblem of the cross as a symbol of of God and of the Christian story is. And really, again, going back to Nietzsche, who in so many ways is the most alert and sensitive modern interpreter of Christianity, he understands it. Yes, I mean, yeah. he gets it. Yeah. He gets it as Paul had got it. Uh, and in a way, Paul saying this is madness and Nietzsche almost 2,000 years on saying this is madness, these are the two bookends of the story that I'm hmm. telling. Um, another thing that struck me, um, speaking still about the, the sort of classical incomprehension of what um, what Christianity was doing, was when you're talking about the Great Fire of Rome, uh, I've been reading another book about the Great Fire that just came out. And um, one of the things that struck me uh, is the sort of lack of Roman building codes. Um, and <laughs> and in fact, the absolute, the absolute sort of unconcern, I don't think that was because they hadn't invented the regulatory state yet. Um, they had in many other areas. They just didn't really give a damn if people died in an apartment building collapse. Um, it, it's very clear that they that it's like, oh, well, you know, these things happen. Um, and this this sort of ties neatly into this idea of of, of human rights. <laughs> uh, do you want to expound on that? Well, I, th- I mean, I think with with Rome, I think it's not quite fair to say there were no building regulations. Okay. Um, the, the emperors the emperors did kind of. Um, Institute fire brigades and 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 various controls like that. So they were, you know, they 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 were the fathers of Rome. They they did have feel a responsibility towards individual citizens. I might maybe a little earlier, but, maybe but, a little earlier. I think this might but, be but, but, even Cicero's time. There might be a, a lack of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 the emperors do, but but the um, 
the thing the thing is is that the concern is for is for the the, the citizen the male citizen mm-hmm. what christianity does is to say well actually everybody is potentially a, a, a child of god every human being is created in the image of god that's the jewish inheritance that's what it, it says in genesis but paul gives this a peculiar slant because he says that um in, 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 if you believe in 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 Christ, this is a second covenant. So it's not just the Jews now who 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 are the the favoured people of Christ. Anybody, uh, the favoured people of God, anybody who believes in this can be. And so Paul says there is no Greek or Jew, there is no man or woman, there is no slave or free in Christ Jesus. And so there's the kind of the, the get out. But there is a kind of it's like a massive depth charge. This idea that ultimately all difference is dissolved, that 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 there's a universal dignity that all can lay claim to, although it doesn't result in 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 the kind of overnight eradication of differences, as judged by ethnicity or or race or by gender or by status. It doesn't result in the abolition of slavery. It does set up this depth charge, and the reverberations from it will echo out and echo out and echo out and continue to reverberate through right the way into the present. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to think that, again, to to reiterate, things that we take for granted, the idea that that there should be gender equality, that that slavery is evil, that uh, there's no black or white, Um, these are ideas... (laughs) are ultimately theological in their root and specific to the impact that Christianity has on Europe and then the the world of the European diaspora beyond it, so including uh, what will become the United States, which, of course, is founded on on truths that are said to be Uh self-evident, but they're only self-evident if you're raised in a society that assumes that they're self-evident, and that, that there are such things as self-evident truths as well, because that's the way the, yeah. that the way, that's the way that the things yeah. have, the universe has been ordered, um, yeah, in its absolutely. in the act of creation. Um, so, which is not not the way that even Plato might have thought about it. He would have thought about it, maybe he would have in some ways, but differently. Um, not for that reason. <laughs> I mean, Christianity it doesn't come from. I mean, nothing comes from nothing. Christianity no. draws on. Uh, you know, it's it's a cocktail of different ingredients, of which the, the main one, of course, is the inheritance of of the Hebrew scriptures and and Jewish assumptions. But there's also Persian dualism, the idea that uh, the world can be divided into into good and evil, into um, into light and dark. Uh, there's the Roman idea of of a kind of universal state. And then there's Greek philosophy, and and Plato is 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 a large influence on it. Um, Aristotle, particularly in the Middle Ages, will become a huge influence on it. Um, will be kind of absorbed into the the fabric of Christian philosophy. Uh, and Paul himself uses a Stoic word, synodesis, to try mm-hmm. and sum up what he means by by the new covenant, the second covenant. The first covenant, of course, had been the um, uh, the, the tablets of stone given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai, and that's specific to the children of Israel. The new covenant is for everyone. That's why there is no Jew or Greek. And now the law of God, rather than being written on tablets of stone, Paul says, is written on the heart. So if you want to know it, you look into your in, 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 into your heart. And Paul 
looks around for a word that can sum up what he's trying to articulate. And he reaches for the Stoic word synodesis. Mm -hmm. And the Stoics believe that the divine is in everything. So the divine is in every human being. And this spark of the divine within every human being, they call synodesis, and we could call it conscience. Mm -hmm. So Paul gets the idea of conscience and embeds it in the fabric of what will become Christian civilization from the Stoics. But because it's it's combined with the Jewish idea of, of a divine law, it privileges it in an amazing way. And it ensures that across Western civilization, two things will be assumed. One is that the law that people can read in their heart, humans then have the right to articulate that. So unlike Jewish or Muslim civilization, which assumes that the ultimate source of law is directly from God, humans are the mediators here. And the second thing is that if you're looking into your heart and it's lit by the Spirit, then the assumption has to be that your understanding of what God's law is will progress over the course of time. Mm -hmm. So the idea of law as something progressive is also hardwired into the West. <laughs> and again, we see both of those ideas absolutely fundamental to the way that Western societies take things for granted. The idea that, that we are the authors of our own laws and that that law can improve year on, year on. What, um, why did uh, the Romans and, and Greeks regard uh, Christians as atheists? And what does that have to say about another sort of change that Christianity brings about? I mean, what was, what was the reason for that? Well, the, for, for the Romans, the gods were in everything. And mm -hmm. so that's why you have a multiplicity of religiones. Uh, and there's always the kind of slight anxiety that you you might miss a god out. Right. So yeah. So <laughs> you, they'll, they'll you, get cross with you. So it's a kind yeah. of constant anxiety. And that's the, why you, that's, Christ, that's why you import a god, uh, the great goddess, for example, when there's there's trouble. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, essentially, so, so, so essentially, the Romans have, have as as every basically every people since since the, the you know, Egyptians and Babylonians started signing and Hittite peace treaties they assume that that gods are you know the, the gods worshipped by the babylonians are basically the same as the gods worshipped by the egyptians and so therefore mm -hmm. possible for for people from different kingdoms to sign treaties and and invoke the gods as witnesses the jews and then the christians are not like that because they assume that there is only the one god and that the gods worshipped by other peoples are particularly of the Hebrew scriptures, which becomes the Christian Old Testament, is very, very contemptuous of the gods that they see worshipped in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. And they say that, uh, you know, these are idols that have to be overthrown, that superstition has to be banished, that um, the people walk in darkness and they have to be brought into a great light. And the, the manifestation of God's purpose is that people will become enlightened. I mean, let me just, let me, can, can, I, can I accentuate something about that? I mean, there's, and throughout the Old mm -hmm. Testament, you have periods of, of combat between the God yeah. of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and, yeah. and the other gods. So Moses facing yeah. off with Pharaoh, Elijah facing off with, the, there's these moments of great tension. The priests of Baal. The priests of Baal. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's a, we're going to get to this in a second, but there's, um, there's these moments of, of confrontation to disprove the power. Not that the other ones don't have power. They can do really weird things. Um, yeah, but they're devils. But they're, they're yeah. And they are inferior, ultimately inferior to yeah. the, 
to you mean you worship yeah. the you worship the might worship the moon goddess, but who made the moon? You know, not yeah. not the moon goddess. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and 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 so it becomes. Um, a, a, a responsibility on Christians to banish this because this, how else are people to be brought into the light? How else are they, they to be made enlightened? You have to uh, open people's eyes to the fact that these idols are just wood or stone. Um, and that's why they have to be toppled. And as Christianity after the fall of the Roman empire spreads into regions of Europe that the Romans had never been. So, the missionaries who go there feel that they are spreading light into darkness. And so this language of enlightenment is fundamental to the spread of Christianity. And, of course, the irony is, is that this, this is the language that then gets taken up by Protestant reformers in the 16th century. And they turn it against the Roman church. And they say the Roman church actually is worshipping idols, that the statues of saints and crucifixes and the Madonna and so on, that these have idols and they have to be toppled and smashed. Uh, and they and Protestant reformers are very keen on the language of enlightenment, that um, the, the spirit illumines you so that you can see that your practices as, as, a, as a papist, you know, you were admired in superstition. All this has to be purged. Then, of course, in the 18th century, hmm. the same process happens and the same language of enlightenment, the same language of, of, of toppling idols, of banishing superstitions. But now it's Christianity itself that becomes that target. But it's absolutely drawing on these same wellsprings. Let me, let me it's just let, that the me, language is being turned against Christianity. Let me quote you to yourself. Um, you've just uh, explain, talked about the uh, Voltaire and the uh, incident in Toulouse with the Cala family. And then you say, yet in truth, there was nothing quite so Christian as a summons to bring the world from darkness into light. Um, and like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, here's Immanuel Kant, you know, speaking of Aufklarung, of the uh, no longer being in our, in, in our childhood. And yet what can be more Christian than saying, go from childhood to adulthood? You know, I no longer think as a child. I no longer speak as a child. I mean, Immanuel Kant, in this case, is another good uh, son of, of pietists, Lutherans. Yes. And um, essentially what happens as uh, European intellectuals and American intellectuals lose their faith in uh, Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead on the third day, but they want to... Um, they want to keep hold of the Christian inheritance, even if they don't recognize it as being the Christian inheritance. And so Kant is an example of one way in which you do that, that you, you essentially you try and transmute theology into philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, Nietzsche is the one who's so contemptuous of this process. Or you... Um, you, you, you theologize the idea of, 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 of rights. Um, so the French revolutionaries do that, in particular, or, or, or truths in the case of the American founding fathers, or rights in the case of the French revolutionaries. And you say that, you know, ideas, the, the, the Christian idea that human beings have rights, which derive from the fact that they've been created by God, you cut out God and you just say that rights exist. And, and, and 
when the French Revolution is launched, the, the amazing thing is is that illustrations are painted. Painters illustrate um, the, the 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 Declaration of Rights, and they show them on on kind of stone tablets, the kind <laughs> that God might have given to Moses. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Short, I mean, how did they not realise what they were doing? Or alternatively, you, uh, you you turn to economics, which is what Marx does, and. Marx claims that he has um, emancipated himself from many hint of superstition, any hint of religion, which is the opium of the masses. He doesn't need that. Um, instead, he sits in the British Library and he number crunches hard facts. And the hard facts that he number crunches, what do they demonstrate? Well, lo and behold, they demonstrate that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, <laughs> that the rich will be cast down and those with sores who sat at the gates of the rich will be elevated and be given the dictatorship. And at the end of time... There'll be a new kingdom. Oh, oh sorry, hold on. And at the end of time... Um, there will be a kind of apocalyptic reckoning in which humanity will be divided into goats and into sheep. And all of this, Marx is saying, you know, is is, is entirely based on hard fact. Mm -hmm. Except. <laughs> it's not hard fact. And you only have to read Das Kapital to realise that Marx has a kind of magma of moral fervour, which is absolutely redolent of the hebrew prophets you know he 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 is he feels morally indignant at the spectacle of small children aged before their time because they're being worked to death in factories or people in distant colonies being lashed so that the bourgeoisie can have sugar with their coffee this this for him is a source of moral indignation but 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 it is it is ideologically generated it's nothing to do with economics mm -hmm. And it, and it has a and it has a, a way of thinking about time that is certainly not classical, but is Christian of advancing towards yeah. towards that final that final hist endpoint of history in which there will yeah. be a, a new kingdom. There will be a new dispensation. Yeah, and, 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 and talking about time, I mean, this is the other irony. Of course, the, the the great threat to Christianity, and I think it's the one great intellectual revolution in in Western history that does not derive from Christianity, but actively repudiates it and undermines it, which is Darwinism. Mm -hmm. But even even Darwin, Darwin's understanding of evolution is dependent on an understanding of deep time. And deep time derives from the, the biblical understanding of a God who creates things at the start. And then, as you say, it will proceed like, like an arrow towards a certain destination. Because most cultures, certainly pre-Christian uh, Mediterranean and, of course, in, in India and in China, the understanding of time is essentially cyclical. Mm -hmm. And if time is understood to be cyclical, then it's almost impossible to get a sense that these strange kind of uh, uh, fragments of bone that you might find in, in, in a mountain might actually be uh, have been the deposit from unfathomably distant periods. So ironically, the understanding of deep time, the understanding that the earth is, is, is incredibly ancient, depends on Genesis. Now, having said that, the theory of evolution that, um, that, that Darwin develops does, of course, undermine Christian assumptions. And, and Darwin recognizes this in himself. Darwin is, is, is from dissenting stock. He, 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 he's from a family of abolitionists. Um, and yet it worries him that... Uh, if you have hospitals, if you have orphanages, if you have mental institutions that are caring for those who properly should die, 
then you risk making human stock weaker and feebler. Um, and although Darwin himself does not coin the phrase survival of the fittest, it's telling that it's his cousin who does and that this is the immediate understanding that gains the most traction. The idea that actually the weak and the poor should be cast aside ultimately if they are if they can't survive if they can't triumph and so that kind of turbocharges quite a lot that comes to be seen as antithetical to christianity be it kind of red in tooth and claw capitalism or be it ultimately the the emergence of of, of fascism and specifically nazism mm-hmm. um Let's go back to, uh, you have some great uh, chapter titles, um, one word, uh, very pithy and very appropriate. Um, we've touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to talk about Boniface um, a, a, a little uh, briefly and about the um, importance of mission um, and the way that mission has reshaped cultures that are not now or ever Christian. So... Um, can, can we talk about the revolutionary impact of, of Christian missions, um, uh, starting with Boniface? Yeah, so, so, so it's it's um, it, it's a very peculiar thing to assume that the, the things that you believe uh, and the gods that you believe and the values that you hold uh, should be applicable to the whole world. Right. I mean, it's an astonishing form of arrogance, really. So I've said, you know, Paul says that there's no Jew or Greek, and that all sounds very Benetonad. You know, that's all very, um, we are the world. Mm -hmm. But if you're a Jew, you may say, well, actually, I don't want to have my distinctiveness dissolved into a kind of universalist mush. And that is actually what happens. And so the the Christianity's relationship with the Jews is the kind of dark shadow of everything that we might see as most positive today, as most positive about Christianity. It's kind of universalism. It's it's contempt for difference. Um, And so... When Christians start to move beyond the limits of the Roman Empire, um, and and it's it's tellingly it's it's Anglo-Saxon missionaries who do this because the Anglo-Saxons, although they're from Britain, a former Roman province, don't themselves recognise themselves as having belonged to the Roman world, right. and so they go beyond the limits of Roman power and they go into the forests of Saxony and so on, and and they start converting the Scandinavians. Um, when they're doing that, they have no time at all for uh, for, for, for Woden or for Thor or for, 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 for the, the, the gods that are worshipped in the deep forests. And the way that Boniface demonstrates his contempt for this uh, dimension of what he sees as paganism is to, is to fell the trees that are regarded by the pagan Germans as symbols of their gods. And in a way, that's kind of emblematic of the approach of Christians towards uh, cultures that they they disapprove of. Now, we in today may regard that as being uh, how appalling, how how um, how how supremacist. But actually, our values, the values of liberalism, the values of secularism are just as coercive. Uh, and, and the way, kind of perfect illustration of that is is what happens in India in the 18th century when the British go there. And the British go there as people who believe that there is something called the secular. You know, this is this is a kind of product of their cultural evolution as Christians. They assume that there is something mm-hmm. called the secular, and they assume that there is something called religion. 
And these are the kind of evolutionary offshoots of, offshoots of that idea of, of the seculum and of religio. Mm -hmm. By the 18th century, it's come to mean that there's a space called the secular and the British go to India to trade, to do business, and they assume that this is, this is divorced from something called religion. But, of course, this requires them, when they go to India, to say, well, what is the religion of, of, of people who live in India? And the British call India Hindustan. They call Indians Hindus. So they say, what is the religion of, of, of the Hindus? What is the Hindu religion? And so they construct something that they come to call Hinduism, which is modeled on a kind of Protestant idea of religion. So it has temple, you know, it has temples which they compare to churches. It has scriptures which they compare to Bible. They have Brahmins which they compare to their own priests, and they construct something which resembles Protestant Christianity, but which no Indian before the British period would ever have recognised as anything that they they knew at all. Uh -huh. But and it, the, does it does ultimate impact of, the, of of British rule? They don't convert. Uh, the Indians, by and large, to Christianity, to, to, to a confessional belief in the Christian God. But they do convert Indians to believing that there is something called the secular and <laughs> that there are things called religion. And there's something called, and I guess there's something called Hinduism as well. I mean, they, they sort of create yeah, that. Yeah, I there's something called Hinduism, yes. <laughs> so when the British leave, India defines itself as a secular republic mm -hmm. in which people who belong to things that are called Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, have the right to practice their religion as they want because this is a secular state. But these assumptions are founded on deeply Christian ideas. And you see the same, you know, in Turkey around roughly the same time with Ataturk after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. yeah. Ataturk founds a secular state in, in, uh, in, 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 in Turkey. And I think it's not surprising now that you see in both Turkey and in India a reaction against this because both Erdogan and Modi are both basically saying that the idea of the secular is, is a, a foreign Western import, and that's what we have to reject. So to liberals in the West, this seems shocking. What, mm -hmm. could, you know, what could possibly be wrong with the idea of the secular? What could possibly be wrong with liberal ideas? What could possibly be wrong with the idea that there is no you know, there is no no Jew or Christian or Muslim or Hindu, for we, we are all one in a secular state. Mm -hmm. But these assumptions are themselves Christian. And the fact that we want, continue to want to export them shows that, in fact, we remain the heirs of Boniface. I want to get we, back. We, we, we retain this missionary zeal uh, to yeah. spread our values across the world. I want to get back to that and 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 sort of and discussing sort of the the conclusion of your book, but and uh, uh, the last chapter called "Woke," and also sort of the secularization thesis, maybe in twenty five words. But before I do that, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how did you write this the book? I mean, it's a big, big book. Uh, it's beautifully written. It's easy to read. And but how do you how do you, how do you operate? How do you put your notes together? How do you do you have all your big pile of stuff uh, in in folders or is it on your computer? And then you just set to work for six months and out it comes this doorstopper. I mean, how does Tom Holland well, go about this? Um, I, I should say first of all that it's not a history of Christianity, so that was immediately liberating. It's a history yes. of what's being revolutionary about Christianity, so right. that's a kind of subtle difference. So that's... I immediately knew that I had a kind of you know a, a, a direction there. Um, well, I, it's such a huge theme that I thought with this one I would draw on Christian symbolic numerology, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's three for the Trinity. So I've divided it into three, and then seven <laughs> for the sacraments, the deadly sins, and oh, so yeah, on. Yeah. So it's each 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 of the three parts is divided into seven. I never seven even chapters. never even noticed that. <laughs> I'm revealing the the, the, yeah. the, the scaffolding there. Three and a seven, um, and so very good. And so I thought that each chapter would open with a particular story, and it seemed to me that stories mattered because stories are ultimately more important to the spread of Christianity than I think than kind of even um, the Ten Commandments or anything like that. It's the parables. It's the story of the Exodus. Kind of part of what make us think the way we do. So each each um, each chapter begins with a particular a, a particular vignette, a particular moment, um, and it ha- it takes a particular. Th- uh, and so it goes through. So the the, the opening chapter as it, it begins with the crucifixion of a, a general on the shores of the Hellespont. Mm-hmm. That chapter is called Athens, and it, it deals with Persia and Greece. Then one we, we go forward in time it's Pompey the Great storming Jerusalem that one is called Jerusalem that's about about the uh, the Jewish inheritance and it goes so it goes on and then the, the penultimate one is is called love and with that we're in with the Beatles in Abbey Road recording all you need is love and then the very final one as you say is called woke uh, and that one begins with um, Angela Merkel live on television in a school talking to school one of the school children is a Palestinian refugee who's come to Germany for medical treatment. She's been told that she has to go home. She bursts into tears. Merkel is left looking very upset and embarrassed. Um, and so each of these stories, I hope, then then provides themes. Okay. Um, so, and how do you, again, how, what's the mechanics of, of writing for, for you? What are, what are they? How, how do you... How do you, did you map all this out on well, a, I, on a, I, on a I, whiteboard? I mean, do you? How do you keep notes? I'm no, just very no. Curious I, about have, this. I have, I have, I have, um, I have folders on a computer, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I, I, I began by basically, I, I spent about a third of the time that I spent researching this book on Paul, mm-hmm. who, who is only the subject of one chapter, but he's so fundamental, he's so important, and there's so much that's been written about him. His letters are so contested that I, I felt I had to completely get on top of him. And to be honest, once I felt that I got on top of Paul, once I got an understanding of what I thought Paul was about and how he was influential, it actually became very easy because everything derives from Paul yeah. and from Paul's letters. Yeah. Everything follows from him. And in a way, I am tracing ribbons of influence that spill out from his letters through time. So the, the further I went through the book, in a way, the easier it became to write because it's like a kind of snowball going down a mountainside. It picks up pace. It gets larger and larger. It goes faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's really the way it worked. But it's also, um, and I'm aware that I'm mixing my metaphors massively. <laughs> it's, it's, it, 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 it's also about uh, foregrounding stuff that's going to happen. So as in a, a detective thriller, you know, if somebody's going to be murdered with a candlestick in chapter seven, really? you need yeah. to mention the candlestick uh, in chapter two. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, you need to introduce your themes. And so, and that would be an influence on on the particular things that I would choose to focus on. So to give an example, um, when I get to um, uh, the idea of, of, of the spirit in radical Anglo-American Protestantism, which I think has been such a huge influence on the way that 
that Britain and then America has, mm-hmm. has, has impacted the world. Yes. I mean, it's kind of a, so explains what America is all about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to choose an episode from the, uh, the, the, the Commonwealth period that followed the English Civil War and the execution of Charles I, this kind of great cauldron of, 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 of mad ideas that was bubbling away. And so I fixed <laughs> on, the, uh, on, on the diggers who were a community of proto-communists who occupied common land on a hill yeah. Uh, in Surrey, outside London, and one I picked on them partly because the, the the diggers foreshadow the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Um, when Stanley became a great hero it, to the Russian Revolution, as a monument to him in in Moscow, but also Gerald uh, Win Stanley occupied this hill where, <laughs> in the sixties, at the height of Beatlemania. John Lennon bought a house and it was a house with a, you know, he had his, his Rolls Royce and he had his swimming pool and it was a gated community. And to this day, you cannot get access to it. So you can't go and see where the diggers dug (laughs) and where John Lennon lived because it's, it's, it's kind of private for Russian oligarchs and people who live there. Of course, John Lennon would then go on to record Imagine, Imagine No Possessions, which is an impeccably Christian sentiment. It's the sentiment that inspired Win Stanley. And St. Francis. John Lennon illustrates the and St. Francis, and yeah, yeah absolutely, so many, going right the way back to, yeah. to, to, to Jesus himself. Yeah. But, but John Lennon illustrates, you know, what's become this great <laughs> atheist hymn with it. Pictures of him and Yoko going through an enormous palatial estate. So it's kind of perfect for the kind of intermingling of, in, of idealism and hypocrisy that has suffused Christian civilization from the 60s right the way back to the beginning. So that was kind of how I chose it. I would choose stuff that, that you know, that, that, that would enable me to pick up themes from, you know, the 17th century that I'd already picked up in, say, the fourth century, and then look forward to the sixties, and and that's essentially it was a kind of tapestry weaving in threads. That's that. Oh, I saw you doing that. I think it's just that it was just brilliant. That's um, one of the many reasons to read this book. Let's uh, conclude with one of the things that you say in the last pages. Uh, let me bear with me as I as I read a long quote from you to yourself. Um, the Nazis retain a starring role in today's demonology. Communist dictators may have been no less murderous than fascist ones, but they, because communism was the expression of a concern for the oppressed masses, rarely seem as diabolical to people today. The measure of how Christian we as a society remain is that mass murder precipitated by racism tends to be seen as vastly more abhorrent than mass murder precipitated by an ambition to usher in a classless paradise. Liberals may not believe in hell, but they still believe in evil." Behind their readiness to use fascist as an insult, there lurks a numbing fear of what might happen should it cease to be taken as an insult. If secular humanism derives not from reason or from science, but from the distinctive course of Christianity's evolution, a course that, in the opinion of growing numbers in Europe and America, has left God dead, then how are its values anything more than the shadow of a corpse? What are the foundations of its morality, if not a myth? Well, there you are, Tom Nietzsche Holland, sort of. Um, the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, I knew who you're you're paraphrasing there, but um, we, do you want to gloss on that to f- finish this out? Yes. Because, because of course, well, the secularization story is now, in some ways, has been greatly contested. Peter Berger, the great 
late sociologist, spent the first half of his career talking about secularization, then the first second half denouncing himself. And and it's not clear where secularization Alex? sometimes is. Yes, go ahead. He uh, Peter, sorry, I lost you there. I... Peter Berger spent the first half of his career uh, um, advancing a secularization thesis, and then the second half denouncing himself um, and saying, you know, whatever. You know, people might not believe in Jesus. They might not go to church, but when they believe in UFOs, whatever they are, they're not secular. Um, words to that effect. Um, so, do you want to gloss on that just to finish this out and gloss on yourself? Well, I think I think I mean I think I think um, the, the the real shadow, as I say in the passage that you read, derives from the Second World War, the uh, the emergence of of um, of Nazism, because fascist regimes were the first attempt consciously to repudiate not just Christianity, but Christian values. The revolution and the Russian revolution, although they were very anti-clerical, um, they didn't repudiate the Christian idea that um, essentially that all human beings are one and that the, 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 the weak and the oppressed have a value by virtue of being weak and oppressed. But the Nazis did do that. The Nazis he did think that, uh, you know, where, where Paul said there's no Jew or Greek, the Nazis thought that that was an insanely wrong. They thought that Greeks and Jews were absolutely different. And when they looked, um, uh, when they thought about um, the cross, they despised it because they absolutely thought that the, that the mighty should prevail over the weak. And indeed, Hitler believed that the Greeks and the Romans had been of Nordic stock and that Greece and Rome had fallen because Paul had corrupted them with his Jewish ideas of cosmopolitanism and and, and, and emphasis on the weak. Way the most grotesque paradox in the whole history of Christianity, uh, and it has a lot of paradoxes, is that the, the Jews are targeted for genocide to die so that a new Paul won't arise and sap the foundations of, of the thousand-year right. Now, of course, the right doesn't last for a thousand years. It collapses. And the shock and the trauma of the period is so profound that in Europe and America, essentially, we know what is right by looking at the Nazis and doing whatever the opposite is. So in a sense... For the past decades, we haven't needed Christianity because we just look at the Nazis. We hmm. haven't needed Jesus because we look at Hitler, and Hitler tells us what is wrong. Hmm. Now, I think the impact, I think the power of that is starting to fade. And I think that you see it in, 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 in America and you see it in Europe that increasingly there are people who, when, when they're told that they're Nazis, kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And the question that have to say that actually all human beings have a dignity and that the, the, the weak and the poor should be cared for, because ultimately these are assumptions that are founded in, in theology and specifically in the kind of the, the, the mythic drama of, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Without that... Are they in the long run sustainable? And that's the I think is the great question that, that that we you know in the West face. And I don't know what the answer to it is. My guest today has been Tom Holland. He's the author of Dominion: How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Tom Holland, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
Thanks ever so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.